So what sorts of things are you afraid of? What are, what are you afraid of? What sorts of fears kind of influence how you respond to life and deal with life and everything? Um, well, I'll encourage you guys to buckle up because we're going to cover about a chapter and a half this morning of Genesis. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull it out or pull it out on your phone and follow along there because the only part that we have printed in the bulletin is the first section of chapter 32. We're going to look at 31 and 32. So um, I'm going to read several verses from 31 and kind of summarize what goes on there. And then I'm going to read the first 13 verses of 32. Um, so if you have it on your phone or if you have a Bible, it'll be helpful for you to follow along in there. Just to remind you, we're, we're looking at the, the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis and to remind you of what has happened so far in a nutshell. Um, Jacob has deceived his father and cheated his brother out of the blessing that is given to the firstborn son. And as a result, he's had to flee home and, um, and because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And so he, he runs away and he goes to his uncle Laban's house. And it's there that he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. But then he gets a taste of his own medicine because Laban deceives him and tricks him into marrying his oldest daughter, the firstborn daughter, Leah. And, uh, and as a result, Jacob ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel and ends up getting their, the, essentially marrying their, their uh, servants as well. He ends up with four wives. Um, and uh, he ends up working uh, for Laban for 20 years, a guy who's constantly trying to take advantage of him and use him. And, uh, and so it's, it's 20 years of, of kind of difficulty in a lot of ways, but in spite of that, God blesses him, and he gives him 11 sons at this point who later become the nation of Israel, and he also gives Jacob all sorts of wealth. As we saw last week, he has all sorts of flocks and herds and camels and everything, and, and, and so he's become very wealthy, and so we, become, we come up to chapter 31 where he gets ready now to go back home. And this is what happens. The, the first three verses of chapter 31 say this. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so God speaks to Jacob, tells him to go home, and Jacob then goes to his wives and gets their input, and they both say, well, everything that our father has had, he's given to you. If God has told you to go home, then let's do that. Let's go home. And so um, because Jacob's afraid of Laban and what Laban might do to him, that Laban might take everything that, that he owns back and everything, he decides to sneak out of town. And uh, starting in verse 20, it says this, And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob 
either good or bad. So, so Laban gets up and he pursues Jacob. He's got, you know, he doesn't have the best intentions. He's, he's angry. Um, and so, but, but even though he, he wants to do harm to Jacob, God speaks to him in a dream and says, don't touch him. Don't say anything to him, good or bad. And so he finally catches up to him. And when he catches up to him, Laban confronts Jacob and he says in verse 29, he says, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So they have this confrontation with one another and Jacob then confronts Laban. If you look down at verse 41, Jacob says to Laban, these 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob recognizes, you know, in, in the midst of all the mistreatment that he experienced from Laban, and the, the, the ill intentions of Laban, that Laban was going to take everything away from him, he recognizes that God protected him. That it's only because God spoke to Laban that, that he was safe. And so these two end up making an agreement. They make a treaty with one another, a covenant with one another, being like, I don't trust you, you don't trust me. We're going to set up a little heap of rocks here as a boundary marker, saying, I'm not going to cross it and deal with you. You're not going to cross it and deal with me. We're going to stay out of each other's lives from now on. And so the chapter ends this way. If you look at verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And so God has protected him from Laban and he continues on his way and he's heading back home. But, but what, is, what is waiting for him at home? What is waiting for him at home is his brother Esau, right? Who wanted to kill him. And so chapter 32 starts off this way. This is what's printed in your, in your order of worship. I'm gonna read verses one to 13. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may, find, I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him into flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, 
for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, as we think about your words here that, that you would speak clearly, powerfully to each and every one of us here. Father, we pray that you would show us yourself, that you would show us your power and your glory, and more than anything else, that you would show us Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I was out for a walk in our neighborhood with my family, with Kim and the the kids, and uh, I decided, um, we were a few blocks away from home, I decided I I was going to come home before them, and, uh, and so I took a little shortcut to come home. I left them behind, and, uh, and I got to my front yard, and when I got to my front yard, I looked up across the street, and there was a huge bear walking along the street. And immediately, like, my, my heart, like, stops in my chest. I'm, I'm scared. I'm afraid. But I'm, I'm pretty close to the front door. I know you're not supposed to run from bears, but I was like, I'm running for it. So I ran inside, I get in, I close the door after me, and I look out. The bear hadn't even taken any notice of me. It was just like walking up the street, continued walking up the street out of sight. But then I'm like, what are Kim and the kids going to do? I'm like scared for them. I'm like so scared. So I call Kim to warn her to like come, come around maybe a different way. And, uh, and, and I call, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings, and she doesn't pick up. And so I'm like, what are we going to do? And, and, and I'm just like looking out the door, helpless, terrified what might happen. And then I hear them before I see them. Of course, they're making all sorts of noise, a huge ruckus, as they always do. And then I see them walking up the side of the street towards the house. And then I see one of the kids kind of run ahead. And then I look towards the other end of the street, and, and I see the bear coming back. And it starts running towards them. And then the one that had run out front, like, veers over into the front yard and starts running towards the door, and I see the bear turn and start chasing the child. And they're running, and they're running. They're getting up to the front door. The bear has almost caught, caught them, and I've got the door open. I'm like, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And the bear gets right up there, and I'm like, the bear's about to jump in the house. And, and so before the bear and the child come in the house, I shut the door. And that's when I woke up. <laughs> Honestly, this is, the, this is the dream I had this past Tuesday night. This past Tuesday night. It felt real. It felt real. It was terrifying. As dreams do, they reveal a lot of the things that, like the deep-seated fears that underlie other things in our lives, right? Um, I have a fear of that something bad happening to my family. I have a fear of not being able to protect them. I have a fear of failing to protect them, of being inadequate. I mean, I woke up with that. I woke up from that dream not only scared, but also ashamed that I shut the door in the face of my child <laughs> with the bear closing in, you know? Um, I, I have all of these fears, you know? They, they influence the way that I, I look at life, the way that I deal with life. Um, and I think that's true of all of us. We have all of these diff- different fears that control how we live. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you guys probably have dreams, too, that reveal some of your fears as well. Some of you guys are more in touch with your hearts, and you're, you're probably aware of what those fears are, but, but there are all sorts of fears that we, that we deal with. You know, we have fears, like I do, of, of something bad happening to me or to people that are close to me that I love. I have fears of failure. I have fear, fears of being inadequate at all sorts of different things. Um, we, we have fears of, um, of not having enough. We have fears of uncertainty. We have fears of change, right? We have fears of, um, of being judged by other people. Um, we have all sorts of fears. And, and one of the things that, as I was reading these chapters, um, that you see here is, is that Jacob is having to deal with multiple fears here. He's caught literally between two different fears. He's, he's running from one. He's running from because of a fear of Laban and what he will do to him, right? And then as, even as he escapes Laban, he's heading home and he's confronted with another fear with his brother Esau and what he will do to him. Jacob's life is dominated by fear here in these chapters. And I think in the midst of our fears, in the midst of Jacob's fears, I think these chapters teach us something about who God is um, and how he wants us to respond to our fears and in light of who he is. And so as, as we get into this, I just want to ask you, you know, to think about what are the things, what are the fears that are most pressing upon your heart this morning? What are the fears? What are you afraid of? Because God wants to speak to you and I think one of the things that jumps out to me um, as, as, as I read this, and maybe it jumped out to you as well, um, is that in, in chapter 31, um, God is referred to by a name that he's, uh, it is unusual. He's not referred to by this name in, in, in any other place in the Bible. This is the only chapter in the Bible where somebody refers to God as the fear of Isaac. Um, did, you, did you catch that when I was reading it? Um, first of all, in, in verse 42, uh, Jacob says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, right? And then at the very end of the chapter, when they both, when, when Laban, you know, vows and, and swears upon his gods, both, both Abraham's God or, or Isaac's God and, and also his own gods, the God of Nahor, and then Jacob swears on the fear of his father Isaac. What is going on there? Why is God called the fear of of Isaac. There's, there's, you know, a lot of kind of debate about what this really means, um, and is, is this even a name for God? Some different commentators will kind of debate whether this is really God being called something, or is this, should this be translated some, some other way? In some translations, they translate it other, other ways. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that this is absolutely a name for God, um, and it's translated correctly in, in, uh, in the ESV, the one that the translation we're using, you know, it's a, it says the fear of Isaac with a capital F. Um, but what is what is it what is it trying to communicate to us here? What is Jacob trying to communicate when he calls God the fear of Isaac? Well, um, I wouldn't get too hung up on the fact that he calls him the fear of Isaac. I mean, back back then, the way that they related to their gods or described their their god was based on how their father and their grandfather experienced him. You know, so often you will have the, he, he is the god of my the God of Abraham, Isaac, and later on you find out the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how the Israelites refer to God. And so the, 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 their God is connected concretely to how their father and their grandfather experienced him, okay? 
But, but the word fear, why does he use the word fear? Well, the, well, the, word, the word for fear here, here is a different word than, than that's the word that's used to describe how Jacob is afraid of Esau or how Jacob is afraid of Laban. It's a different word. I think it's a more intensive word that literally means trembling or dread. And I think what, what Jacob is getting across here, he recognizes that he was scared of Laban, right? Because Laban was a powerful man. Laban had the power to do terrible things to Jacob, to take everything that belonged to Jacob, and even to hurt Jacob and his family. But what happens? God, his God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, shows up and speaks to Laban. And immediately, Laban's like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. You know, as powerful and as scary as Laban was, God was clearly more powerful, more fearful than the scariest thing that, uh, that Jacob was dealing with at the moment. In other words, it's, it's kind of like, um, anybody see John Wick? It's kind of like a John Wick effect, you know? Like even the most dangerous and scary criminals, they're scared of John Wick. I mean, the fear of Isaac the, is, is the one that the scariest things in the world are scared of the fear of Isaac. That's how great and powerful and mighty he is. And so, what does this mean for us? Well, for Jacob, it meant that he was completely protected, that, that Laban was going to do him harm, but he doesn't because the fear of Isaac is on his side. Does that mean for us, if we can get the fear of Isaac on our side, then nothing will touch us? We will be completely protected, completely safe from everything? I would say no. I think the point here is that when it comes to all of our fears, um, the reality is, is that, that we have a tendency to, to focus on our fears primarily, to be worried primarily about our fears, but ultimately what we should be most concerned with is the one that causes all things to tremble. That's the one that we should be most concerned with. We should be most concerned with God, the living God, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac. Because when we come into his presence, the most natural response is to tremble. And so in the midst of all the things that we're scared of, instead of focusing on those things, we should primarily focus on him. What does he want? We should be primarily surrendering to him, no matter what he decides to do. He is the one who is ultimate in power. And so he is the fear of Isaac. I think it points to the greatness and the power of God, the, the, the fact that he alone deserves our surrender and submission. But then after God has protected Jacob from Laban, Jacob heads on his way in chapter 32. And it's, there's this really cool passage right here at the beginning of 32 in the first couple of verses where it says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And what you see here is that God is also not only the fear of Isaac, but he's the God who camps. He is the God who camps. He is the God who, who comes and, and camps right next to Jacob's camp. That's, this is the, this gift that is given to Jacob. God says, hey, Jacob, as you're in the, even as you escape the clutches of Laban, as you're getting ready to face something that is scary in Esau, don't forget I'm camping here right next to you. I'm here with you. I am present. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here. And so God, is, is, he shows himself to be present with Jacob so that he doesn't have to fear, so that he can find comfort and peace. 
It's kind of like um, this past week, uh, Adrian and Nana were away at sleepaway camp. And, uh, and so David was sleeping alone every night. And uh, he's not used to sleeping alone. And so when he went to bed, he was scared. And, uh, and so we, we went and we put him to bed and we said, okay, David, I know you're not used to going to bed by yourself. What we're going to do is, whether it's me or Kim, whoever puts him to bed, we're going we're gonna to stay up here in our bedroom and lay down next, in the bedroom next to yours until you can fall asleep. And so, of course, once he knows that we're in the bedroom next to him, he's fine, right? He's able to just drift off to Never Never Land because he's not worried anymore because he knows that we are there and that we will take care of him. And it's, it's not too dissimilar from what I think God shows to Jacob here in the midst of the uncertainty of what's going to happen with Esau. God says, I'm going to camp right here next to you. I'm going to be here with you. Don't stress out because I am present. And so as you think about the things that you're scared of, as you think about maybe the, the uncertainty of your future, as you think about something that you feel out of control about and you're afraid of the lack of control you have, maybe, maybe some, a problem that, that somebody in your family is dealing with, you need to know, God says, I'm here. I'm walking in lockstep with you. I'm not going to be far away. So don't be afraid. And lastly, I think what, what I think we're meant to see here is, uh, is we see the God who delivers. And I think this is true in a couple of different ways. There was a great basketball player, any of you guys who are, are basketball fans, uh, there was a guy named Carl Malone who played for the Utah Jazz a bunch of years ago, kind of a legendary power forward in the, in the NBA. And uh, his nickname was the Mailman. And they called him the Mailman because he always delivered. You know? In, in other words, he always showed up and gave the crowd something to cheer for. He always produced something great on the basketball court. And I think there's a sense of God being the mailman here for Jacob. He delivers for Jacob. And as he spends all of those years in Laban's household, what does God do for him? He, he comes true to his promise to make him into a great nation as he gives him 11 sons. And he makes him wealthy beyond anything he could imagine. He, like he, he says in, in, in chapter 32, verse 10, the second half of verse 10, as Jacob is praying to God, he says, for with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob recognizes that because of what God has done for him, he is wealthy beyond anything he could have imagined when he first showed up at Laban's home. God has taken care of him. God has provided for him. God has, even, God has, God has heaped all sorts of incredible blessings upon his life. God has delivered for Jacob. But I think as, as you think about that, it, it's important to, to think about who originally read this book, okay? The book of Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, were originally written to the Israelites after they were rescued from Egypt. After they left Egypt, after hundreds of years of slavery there, and God rescued them, they wandered in the wilderness. But as they were in the wilderness, God spoke to Moses and had him write these books so that they would know who the God is that rescued them, who, who, who God was that rescued them. And so the Israelites, as they have been rescued from Egypt, are reading this story here. And as they read this, they would have seen some parallels in Jacob's life with their own, in their ancestors' life with their own. 
Just as Jacob spent years in Laban's house and in some ways mistreated and oppressed. You know, he talks about how Laban changed his wages 10, 10 times. He was always trying to take advantage of him. And then God rescued him. God brought him out and protected him. And not only did he bring him out, but he gave him more wealth than he could imagine. Um, what happened with the Israelites when they left Egypt? God came down, he sent Moses and pulled them out. But not only did he rescue them from slavery, but God poured out all of these plagues upon the Egyptians so that when finally, after the 10th plague, when the Egyptians said, finally, get out, not only did they tell them to leave, but they took all of their wealth and gave it to the Israelites. They were like, take this stuff with you. Just go. And so the Israelites walked out with their arms full of all sorts of things, all sorts of wealth of the Egyptians. And so in a sense, as, as the Israelites were reading this, they would see parallels. They would be reminded of what God had done for them to rescue them and to bless them beyond anything they could have even imagined. And then we, I think as we read this, we need to take it one step further. We need to take it one step further. I think we are meant to read this and to be reminded of how God has delivered us. How God has delivered us from slavery and oppression. What is our slavery and oppression? It's, it's, it's an oppression that is a result of our sin. God has sent Jesus into the world to live and to die and to rise again to set us free from our guilt and from our shame and from the power of sin in our lives. And because of what Christ has done, we are set free. We are, we are delivered from our sin. But not only has God delivered us from our sin, but he has heaped upon us blessing after blessing. Do you realize this? Not only has he sent Jesus to, to provide a way for us to be forgiven for our sin, but he has made us his children. He said, I'm going to adopt you, and I'm going to pour out my love upon you, and I'm going to use everything in your life to work for your good, and he just heaps thing after thing upon us. And he says, I've got plans for your future that are beyond what you can imagine. I've got joy unspeakable that you can't even fathom that you will experience in all eternity. And he heaps more and more into our arms. And so not only has he delivered us from our sin, but he has also poured out the blessings of his presence and his love and his goodness. And so I think as we read this, I think we are encouraged to be reminded of all that God has done for us. And so really quickly, what does this demand of us? This is who God is. He is the fear of Isaac, the one we should be paying closer attention to than anything else, no matter what, no matter how big the fears are in our lives. He's the one who camps right next to us, who is present He's the one who delivers and who pours out favor and blessing upon us that we, we haven't even scratched the surface of. What does it mean to really live in the presence of the fear of Isaac, the living God, that we don't have to fear anymore because of what Jesus has done? How should we respond? Well, what does Jacob do? He, he does a few different things. One thing he does is he, he ponders the things that God has told him before, right? He, he remembers that God has said, I'm gonna do you good. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. He, he remembers the things that God has said. And so I think one of the things that we need to do as we deal with the fears in our lives is we need to continually come back to God's word and, and read it and remind ourselves of what has God said? Where can I get strength from what God has said? We need to pray. That's what Jacob does, right? 
In chapter 32, verses 9 to 12, Jacob prays. Jacob turns to God and he prays to him. And he asks God, deliver me from the hand of my brother. And so as we deal with the things that we are afraid of, we need to continually turn to God over and over again. Pray, cry out to him, right? What else does Jacob do? Jacob obeys. Um, the very first thing God tells him in, verse 30, in chapter 31, right? He says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And Jacob does just that. You know, when are we more safe in life than when we're doing what God tells us to do? If, if we know that God has told us to do something and we do that, we can be confident that God is going to be with us and he's gonna protect us in the midst of it. So figure out what is God telling you to do? Look again at his word. What does he command you to do? How does he command you to lay down your lives for others and sacrifice yourself for others? God will protect you and care for you in the midst of, of obe obeying him. But lastly, and I think really foundationally, what does Jacob do? Jacob looks to God and counts on God's grace. If you look at his prayer, if you look at his prayer, how does Jacob pray? In verse 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. Jacob recognizes he doesn't deserve what God has done. He doesn't deserve God's commitment to him. He doesn't deserve God to camp next to him. He doesn't deserve God to, to work through him and to give him all that he's given him. Jacob might not, I'm sure Jacob doesn't even, doesn't even really realize how much he doesn't deserve it, but at least he realizes he, at, at some you know, surface level, he doesn't deserve it. I mean, look at all the ways that he doesn't deserve it, even in this passage. I mean, his entire life has been spent like scheming and trying to manipulate things and try to grasp for things in his own strength, right? And that's what he's constantly doing here. When God tells him to go home, he's like, okay, I gotta figure out how do I escape Laban? I, I gotta wait till he goes away and then sneak out, right? I gotta figure out what's the best plan to do this. And as he gets ready to face Esau, he starts planning and scheming again. You know, he sends messengers ahead to look, you know, to look really like humble. You know, my Lord, you know, I just want to find favor in your sight. And then he divides his camp into two camps. You know, how quickly, you know, he named that place two camps. Why? Because he realized God's camping next to me. And then so quickly he forgets that God's camping next to him. And, he, and he's like, I've got two camps here of stuff I need to protect. Right? He's so focused on himself and, and his needs and what, he, and what he wants and what he has to try to protect himself. And then, and then the very last verse that we looked at, verse 13, is the beginning of him start to be like, I'm going to go ahead and start bribing Esau. I'm going to start sending stuff to him. And maybe the more stuff that I send to him before I go meet him, then maybe he'll be like nicer to me when I see him. Like Jacob's constantly just relying on himself. And throughout, right, even after God delivers him from Laban, he's still scared of what Esau might do. He's still being controlled by his fears. Jacob doesn't deserve God's grace, doesn't deserve God's kindness. And yet God is absolutely faithful. God is absolutely loving, right? And I think that's what we need to do at the beginning, the middle, and the end. We need to count on God's grace that he will meet us. That's who he is. The fear of Isaac, the one who causes everyone to tremble, is yet also the one who is perfect in steadfast love and mercy. 
We need to count on him to love us even though we don't deserve it. To care for us, to meet us in the midst of our fears. And again, it's, it's, we, we need to continually come back to the cross because it's at the cross that we see all of that to come together. It's at the cross that God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us Jesus. And he gives us more than we could even fathom in his perfect love and acceptance and favor. So as you think about your fears, as you think about your fears, turn from them and turn to Jesus. Turn to the perfect grace of the fear of Isaac and count on him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, work in us a greater awareness of how great and awesome you are that we would prioritize the things in our lives based on who you are rather than based on the things that we're afraid of. But Father, we pray that you would also help us to prioritize the fact that you are a God who is full of grace, who is full of mercy, and who delights in moving toward us with that grace, no matter how unworthy we are. 